We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Good evening, Keith. And uh, we've got quite a full studio today. Uh, Two more folks to introduce. First off, a Taiwan-based freelance journalist, former head of Taiwan's Foreign Correspondents Club, and frequent contributor, Jane Ricards. And good evening, Keith. Good evening to you as well. And uh, also with us in studio today, for the very first time, uh, we've got historian and political commentator, Jerome Keating. Good to be here. Glad to have you. On the show today, we'll take a look at the dispute with Japan over fishery rights in the East China Sea today. Then pork and politics meet once again, tying when taking some heat for perhaps, maybe, possibly, considering opening the door to U.S. ractopamine-infused pork. Then in the second half, we'll be getting an expert opinion on an incident this week in which 39 shelter dogs died from heat exhaustion while in transport, apparently due to overcrowding. And we'll be rounding out the broadcast with a bit of archaeological news. Uh, Not a kind of news that uh, comes up much, so that'll be nice. Uh, But before we can get into any of that, uh, Gavin, there's two other stories that we're going to need to get some updating on. So let's run through those real quick. Uh, First up, the tragic Formosa Fun Coast water park disaster from last year is back in the news once again. Because courts handed out their first sentence related to the case earlier this week. Uh, to the event organizer, Lu Chengqi. Uh, that sentence, four years and ten months in prison. Uh, now, Gavin, uh, right off the bat, those close to the victims have been criticizing the verdict as far too lenient. Uh, but before we get to that criticism, let's uh, first remind our listeners, you know, because it has already been a year, uh, what is this case all about? Well, there was a deadly fire where the, corn, the coloured cornstarch powder exploded into balls of flames at the Water Park in Bali District in New Taipei in June of last year. Mm. Of course, some 500 people were injured in this fire. Right. Fifteen of them have since died of their injuries. Something and, like 200, though, were severely injured. Well, the, the health officials say exact 281 of the mm. victims suffered burns that covered over 40% of their bodies, and of those, 41 suffered from burns that covered more than 80% of their bodies. So, right. So, skip ahead, skip ahead, skip ahead. We get to the sentencing, uh, and it's the organizer of the event that's uh, getting sentenced. Yes, this was Lu Zhongji, and he ran the company that organized the party, and the company was called Color Play Asia Party. Mm-hmm. And he was, in fact, found guilty of professional negligence resulting in death and injury. Right. Now, of course, you said, Keith, that this verdict has been questioned. Well, it has been questioned in two, two ways, basically. Lawyers representing the victims and their families are expressing regret over what they see as a light sentence. And there's also been claims, and this is before the trial itself, by members of the victims' families, and they were questioning why Lou was the only person to actually face a court over this horrific incident. Right, obviously a lot of other people involved in the event. Now, uh, Jerome, there's a a bit of precedent to all this. I mean, similar manslaughter cases, cases where uh, folks, you know, it wasn't a murder, but uh, some degree of negligence occurred in somebody's death uh, for, you know, much smaller cases that received similar sentences. Right. There is the Zane Dean case where Zane Dean received four years and 
very questionable who was driving the car. Right. The manslaughter, hit and run sort of case, right there. Right. It was manslaughter, hit and run, but great dispute over who was actually driving. And mm. I don't think we want to go into there. But the main thing was just four years for one death. And then there is the case of the. Wang Chiao Han, a student who was killed by Li Wenyi again, and that one I don't think has received sentencing yet. But mm. I have the feeling that one will be a lighter sentence. Right. So certainly, when we compare、uh, those, you know, relatively few people were killed in those incidents, but the sentencing was. Uh, quite similar, we can see why some folks might feel like the sentencing here is somewhat disproportionate.、Uh, but、uh, Jane, you were saying before we turned on these mics that、uh, maybe we're, as the public, not in the best position to、uh, be determining the sentence here. Well, I, my only comment about this is I hope it's resolved、um, systemically or within、mm-hmm. institutions, and this doesn't end up being trial by media or trial、right. by the mob.、Yeah. Um, Taiwan was an authoritarian country; now it's a young democracy, and I think it needs to focus on strengthening its institutions. So, if there are any problems with the sentencing, I just hope it's resolved within the system and not sort of crowds of people putting pressure on the judiciary. Well,、uh, good luck with that. We'll see how that goes. Uh, but we're going to leave that story. As I said, we're going to be racing through this whole lot.、Uh, these first two stories. Next up, the OBI pharma scandal saga、uh, continued this week. Of course, this all involves Academia Sinica president Wang Qihui,、uh, who's suspected of insider trading following revelations that he sold off ten thousand shares of OBI pharma stock on behalf of his daughter. Right before we should mention. Uh, very bad clinical trial results came out for one of the company's cancer drugs,、uh, a drug which Mr. Wang endorsed. Okay, so、uh, if you listened to this show last week, or if you have been paying any kind of attention whatsoever to Taiwan news here, that is, none of that is news to you. You're probably up to speed on all of that.、Uh, what has been news this week is the fact that Mr. Wang. Isn't stepping down? No, he won't go away. He really won't go away. OBI won't go away. Ong Chihui won't go away, and the situation won't go away. He tried to go away, of course. When it hit the fan, he said, "I would like to resign." And President Mao Zedong said, "No, I'm not going to accept your resignation." He came back from America, like we told listeners a few weeks ago. He defaced the music.、And、this week, he met Maying Zhou for a little bit of a tete-a-tete about the situation. I take it maybe they had sandwiches, maybe they didn't. Who knows? That's anyway, how tete-a-tetes du- are known to go. Yes. Yeah. During that meeting, he asked Ma if he could have twenty-eight days off work. To which Ma said, "No way, Jose. You can、hmm. face the music. You're not getting any leave of absence, and you're not resigning." Now, Ma basically said this. Well, sources say Ma said. This because the president felt that if he approved Ong's request for leave, it could lead to suspicions of evading parliamentary oversight.、Mm. This is related to the fact that this week Ong actually was called in front of lawmakers to explain his sort of connections to the OBI pharma case.、Yeah. What was kind of ironic when he. Appeared before the lawmakers. The lawmakers, I will add, are calling for him to resign. Ong turned around and said, "I'm not going to resign. I'm going to face these charges, and I'm going to prove myself innocent." So it was kind of ironic. He asked to quit. He asked to quit twice. He asked for a time off. He got to lawmakers and the legislature, and he suddenly decided he didn't want to quit. Yeah, yeah, right. Well,、uh, the quote that stood out to me is when he said,、uh, "Many reports are unfair to me, so I have to remain in the post." So it seems like motivating him at this point is, you know, if he quits, that 
uh, takes away his only chance to, I guess, give his side of the story. Uh, now, Jane, uh, how, how is this politically, you know, coming up to the inauguration on the 20th? Okay, I think this is fantastic for the incoming government. It's a very mm. useful diversion for them. First of all, um, President Maying Jo, regardless of the truth of what Wong did or what he didn't do, Maying Jo has to deal with all his dramas, like, you know, for, as Gavin mentioned most recently, when he asked for 28 days of leave and was refused. And so the public attention's completely on Wong what he possibly did in Ma. And so that gives the DPP government a lot of time to sort of make deployments and choose personnel without so much public focus on them or public criticism. Mm. And Wong had actually been in the position since 2006, which was during the last DPP administration, as well as Ma administration. But I think for the general impression people get, it's another reminder of why they voted out the KMT government. <laughs> you know, that as, you know, as Ma steps down, there's one final possible scandal Again, we don't know what happened. Fairly or unfairly, yes, it yes, makes exactly. a poor association. Yeah, fairly or unfairly, I think this is helping the new government. Mm. Yeah. Now, it's interesting that you say that because our guest uh, last week, Bill Sharp, was pointing out that uh, Tsai Ing-wen's brother actually has some dealings with OBI Pharma, also an investor, and Tsai herself has some pretty strong connections to the biomedical industry. So uh, he was raising the possibility that she could actually get sucked into this whole mess herself. Yeah, well, she hasn't been... That's a very, very good point. Um, She hasn't actually been sucked in yet, and she could be. And whether that's a sign of her political expertise or the fact that there's nothing there, we don't know. But mm. if Sai doesn't get sucked in, um, what strikes me the most is his meeting with Ma yeah. all the time and Ma's looking, you know, having to make all these decisions and people are looking at the way Ma's handling it, not Sai. Perhaps a particularly bumblery once again. Well, I won't go. Well, (laughs) we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. Uh, All right. Well, we got those two stories out of the way. Now on to a meteor topic. Pork. (laughs) Pork is the meteor. Jane liked that one. Okay, good. It was worth it. Uh, U.S. pork, to me, more precise. Uh, We already discussed last week the controversy of whether or not Taiwan should allow in U.S. pork treated with the leanness-promoting feed additive ractopamine. Well, it's back in the news in a big way this week because one of the appointees for the upcoming cabinet may have sent out a signal that the Thai administration is planning to relax its stance of zero tolerance toward ractopamine-infused pork. Uh, This is the guy that was tapped to serve as the Minister of the Council of Agriculture in the upcoming administration, Tao Chi Huang. Uh, Now, he said in an interview that unlike larger economies such as the EU and China, Uh, Taiwan simply does not have the leverage to refuse imports of U.S. pork. Uh, And he went on to say that accepting ractopamine pork is the direction the future government is heading in. So, uh, Gavin, uh, the KMT is now accusing the DPP of flip-flopping on this issue. Yeah, this is because of Mr. Cao Chi Hong, as you said. He said Taiwan cannot shut its doors to U.S. pork containing ractopamine forever in the face of globalization. And of course, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is all part of this wonderful globalization, if you happen to lean that way. And of course, the U.S. has put a lot of pressure on Taiwan, like we said last week, to open its borders to U.S. pork. But what I thought was interesting this week is when the incoming cabinet spokesperson, Dong Jun Yuan, well, he turned around and said, well, you know, I think talks on whether we'll open up to U.S. pork are currently rather premature because basically this is an issue for the next U.S. government to decide. He 
quite a clever comment as far as I'm concerned because basically he based that on the premise that two of the major US presidential candidates are opposed to the Trans-Pacific mm-hmm. Partnership and of course it's still unclear whether US policy will be adjusted after its election and even if the TPP will ever come into existence. And let's just explain real quick what US pork imports have to do with the TPP. Jane, this would be probably a requirement uh, for the U.S. to be interested in allowing Taiwan to join in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yes, that's right, Keith. And it's also a requirement from the U.S. if Taiwan wants to deepen trade ties. Just in general. Yes, and that has been part of Tsai Ing-wen's um, economic policy platform. Yeah. That she wants to rebalance away from China. So the issue of pork has to be addressed either way, I think. Right. And so she's in a bit of a pretty delicate balancing act at this point. I mean, just the the, the slightest hint, the slightest whiff uh, that she perhaps will be relaxing the DPP's stance, which you know, has been zero rack topamine, uh, has caused this huge furor this week. I, there were pig farmers out on the street mm. protesting, uh, demonstrating in front of the uh, American Institute in Taiwan. So clearly a lot of anger there. Uh, is there a way, I mean, what, what's the path forward for her on this issue? I mean, my opinion, um, this is going to be one of the biggest tests for size presidency, at least mm. in the early days. Um, she's promised um, the public the TPP. Um, she's also, there's also this public call not to relax pork imports. I think you can't have both. Mm. Um, now, Spokesman Dung said that it should be delayed until after the election. Well, he's got a good point, but I think as Tsai was elected in a landslide, she needs to. She need. She ultimately needs to do this. So it's either the TPP mm-hmm. or um, ban pork with ractopamine. She can't have both. Yeah. And so I think she needs to choose one, and she needs to do it as early as possible while she's still popular. Yeah, spend that political capital while she still has it. Yes, and I think it's, she has to be very careful not to make the same mistakes Mei Ying Zhou made, and she needs to pick one path and then just stick with it. Mm. What, of course, is ironic here is the KMT turning around and now and saying that ractopamine could be bad for consumers' health. Well, of course, the Ma government let the US beef in with ractopamine. All right, you know, there was a bit of a stink about it. But it still let it in, and now the KMT is still saying that it's bad for health. So they... If they're digging a bit of a pit for themselves there. They're, first of all, they let the beef in with ractopamine. Now they're saying it's bad for people's health. Mm. And, of course, the question whether ractopamine is bad for people's health seems to be totally depending on one's political bent and where one comes from, <laughs> yeah. basically. The science has been very politicised, absolutely. It has, isn't it? They're very politicised. Europeans yeah. don't want ractopamine because it's American. Yeah. But America wants Europe to have <laughs> ractopamine because it's America. Well, definitely, I think this this has to be dealt with, and it will basically say for the Tsai government, you have no honeymoon period. Hmm. If one remembers when Ma got elected in 2012, the day after the election, Ray Berghardt, the chairman of AIT Board of Trustees, mm-hmm. was here. And yeah. the main issue was, the implication was, we helped you get elected, you got to pay us back with this. Now, the other balancing factor, and that I think is probably more important, that has the trade-off value is the TPP. And therefore, this can be used to size advantage that, okay, we'll take this thing, but you make sure we get in TPP. And then, if one wants, I'll give a facetious answer, but uh, this was done in the past, you can just take the pork and bury it as long as you're in TPP. 
This was done, by the way, in the 1980s when Heineken was trying to get in. Mm. Now Heineken, of course, has a pretty good entry port. So, to, so you mean literally buried, like they took crates of Heineken yes. and they buried it under the ground? I have this from a reliable Taiwanese source that <laughs> when they the trade-off was that, okay, we will. you have to let Heineken beer be brought in to compete with Taiwan beer. Mm. And in initial stages, they buried it. I don't know where. I wish I did, but it's probably no use now. I mean, they buried it a lot. I'm in my stomach drawing back then. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's one way to hide the Heineken. All right. Oh, okay. So uh, clearly, I mean, uh, I think that the case that we're building throughout the show and that we've been building for the past couple of months is that uh, no honeymoon period for the Thai administration, or if there is one, it's ending before uh, her inauguration speech even happens. Poor Thai Ing-wen. Yeah, but like getting married and then getting norovirus in your honeymoon hotel, wouldn't it, really? Uh, That's a very apt comparison. Surprisingly apt comparison. All right, well, we're going to round out the first half with just one more story. Uh, Taiwan's fishing fleet can't seem to stay out of the news for more than a week at a time. Uh, The whole fleet is basically instant controversy, just add disputed waters. Most recently, I think it was the Shengde Tai and the Lian Yixing, number 116, uh, they ran into trouble with Indonesia in the Strait of Malacca. Now, sort of like a nautical game of Clue, all all you've got to do is switch things around, the names, the places, and and you've got this week's mess, the Dongsheng-chi number 16, with the Japanese near the Akanatori Atoll. In this case, Japanese authorities seized the Taiwanese vessel, briefly detaining its Taiwanese captain along with the crew. Uh, They were released, though, after paying a security deposit, quote-unquote security deposit, Uh, but the incident has sparked a diplomatic spat with Japan centered on the merits of this accommodatory quote-unquote atoll. Uh, so, Gavin, uh, what's the argument there? Yes, of course, this all goes back to the UNCLOS thing we've talked about before when we've been talking about the South China Sea and what represents and what constitutes an island or a landmass and what constitutes an atoll or simply a piece of sand or a reef. And now, the reason that governments care about this is... Because of the, the exclusive economic zones they have around them, of It's course. either 200 miles wide if it's a real island or barely anything if it's just a little reef. Yes, now, the Okinatori Reef, and it's a reef or an atoll, depending which publication you choose to read. It's not very big if you see pictures of it, basically. It's like two table tennis tables in size. Mm-hmm. So you could play table tennis there. And that's about, you could, have a, you could have a picnic and play table tennis there, and that's about all you could do there. Right, for some people, we could say that supports well, a certain kind of life. Tokyo agrees with this, because Tokyo does believe that it does, it's warrants a 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone, which is why the fishing boats were picked up, because mm-hmm. they were 150 kilometres off this reef when they were picked up by Japanese Coast Guard. So by Taiwan's definition, they were outside of J- Japan's exclusive well, by, zone. By, by, the, by, by the Mara administration's definition, the Okinatori Reef is not a landmass and does not warrant the nautical mile exclusive economic zone of 200 nautical there miles. There we go. We've got the we got the legal aspect of this all squared away. Uh, now, this is uh, almost a case that sort of surprised me because Taiwan does have uh, a fisheries agreement with Japan. So, you know, we're used to hearing these disputes with Indonesia, as I mentioned ago. We're used to hearing them with the Philippines. Now we're having this with Japan again? I thought that we were proud of uh, the progress that we'd made here, Jane. 
My main point is I don't think this is um, a, going to be a long-term trend with Japan. Um, you've got to remember that this has happened with the outgoing government, which goes, I think, in less than a month. Mm-hmm. And the first thing President-elect Tsai Ing-wen did the day after she got elected was she met with the Japanese am- de facto ambassador and the head of the Interchange Association, and she announced she was about to sign a free trade agreement, which is something Maud lobbied for and wasn't able to achieve. Mm. Um, you know, the KMT government boasted about the investment agreement it signed with Japan in 2011, but behind Behind the scenes, it wasn't really that rosy between Ma and Japan. Yeah. So um, I, I don't think this is a long-term trend for Taiwan-Japan relations. Mm. Um, secondly, I think this highlights the, the whole dispute about rocks and islands and the fact that Taiwan's completely powerless. Mm. And given the fact that this is a caretaker government and Ma's mm-hmm. effectively a lame duck or even a paper tiger, you know, this is um, this just... <laughs> whatever metaphor you want to... Exactly. Whatever belittling metaphor we want to use right there, yeah. Exactly, because Taiwan's fighting with the Philippines because the Philippines says that Taiping Island's a rock and they're saying, no, mm-hmm. it's an island, quite rightly. And now Japan's... Well, if this Akanatori Reef is an island, then Taiping Island is definitely an island. Exactly, exactly. But the whole point is that Taiwan's very powerless. Like, it hasn't been invited to take part in the arbitration in the Philippines. It's mm-hmm. very powerless yeah. to enforce any of this because it's outside the UN system. So I think this whole incident just stresses how powerless Taiwan is. Mm. I would agree with that because if you look, they made a fisheries agreement with Japan over the the Aotai or Senkaku, and that included overlapping EEZ. And this one seems outrageous to for Japan to claim it, it's, it's almost like a, we made this agreement with you on this one, but we're slapping you in the face with this one. Uh, I, I'm surprised at that, but I can only see it in terms of relationship to the things that are going on in the South China Sea with China, because China is also going to be weighing in on this with Japan. Mm. So there, there's a lot, there's a deeper issue here than mm-hmm. this. And they just right put down a deposit. They got off scot-free. There was no big deal in that sense. I'm glad they didn't resist there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jane, do, do, do you also see the perhaps uh, the China angle in all this? Yeah, not being a Jap- Japan correspondent or based there, I can only speculate on Japan's motive, but I actually thought it was actually a message to China, not mm. Taiwan. And um, the... Uh, Akanatori. The Akanatori Atoll is in a very strategic... Today we've got to say Ractopamine, Akanatori. Yes. It's a rough day. China has a strong military interest in that area because it's a halfway point between Guam and Taiwan. Mm. So, um, yeah, I suspect it was a message for China. All right. Well, we're going to end that story right there and actually round out the whole first half. Uh, when we return, we'll be taking a hard look at the treatment of shelter dogs in Taiwan as the country moves towards a zero euthanasia policy. And we'll also discuss the most heartwarming pile of bones anyone's ever unearthed. All of that and more when we return to Taiwan this week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Jane Ricards, Gavin Phipps, and Jerome Keating. Kicking off the second half, uh, we've got a bit of grim news to cover. Public outrage in Jiayi County after 39 dogs died this week, apparently due to heat exhaustion, when the dogs were transported in a way, way overcrowded car, Gavin. 
Yes, this relates to Jai County Magistrate Junghua Guan, and he moved to replace the head of the county's livestock disease control centre this week after 42 stray dogs died of heat stroke while they were being transported by the centre to a private animal shelter. It was originally believed that the vehicle's um, air conditioning system wasn't functioning properly, but after an investigation they proved that Possibly the animal um, centre shouldn't have crammed so many dogs into one truck. Mm. They say the dogs should have been transported. Oh, the, the dogs and a cat. There was one cat, apparently. Mm. So, you know, a lot of animals. 70 stray dogs and a cat. Yeah. There you go. Apparently they're saying they should have been transported on four trips, but the centre chose to cram them all into one truck for a single journey in order to cut costs. And, of course, the ironic thing is, in a sort of sad some might say sick and twisted and very black-humoured way, the dogs were going to be euthanised when they were taken from A to B. So there you go. But obviously uh, a much more inhumane way uh, for them to pass. Uh, Now, this is uh, an area that's a little bit outside of our expertise, uh, the treatment of animals in Taiwan. So to help us out with that, uh, we have on the show this morning Lisa Milne. She's the director of Animals Taiwan uh, to kind of give us some perspective on what this all says uh, about the way that shelter animals are treated here. Uh, Lisa, good evening to you. Good evening, yeah. So uh, as some of our listeners might know, uh, Taiwan is on its way to becoming a zero-euthanasia nation, meaning that shelters are going to be responsible for all the animals in their care, uh, and none of them will be put to death. That's something that's uh, going to be rolling out in the coming year or so. Uh, And I I just wonder, I mean, does this kind of throw that whole process into question if uh, the way that these animals are being treated by government shelters, this was a government shelter that was doing the transporting, uh, are already struggling with their treatment of these animals? Yes, definitely. Um, I've been very worried as soon as I heard that Taiwan was becoming a non-kill nation uh, in the government shelters. Um, Of course, I I volunteer for animal welfare, and I'd like to see all the stray animals being well cared for and adopted. But um, currently, with the number of stray animals in Taiwan reaching around about 2 million, it's not... um, plausible right at this time. And the government needs to uh, look at their procedures and things much more carefully before they make this huge step. Because a government shelter um, cannot say no to any animals being brought in. Whereas a private shelter such as Animals Taiwan, you know, we have the luxury as such to be able to say, okay, we're overcrowded. I'm sorry, we cannot take your dogs in. So we, of course, can be a non-kill. A government's facility cannot have that luxury. They have to take in every single animal that's brought to them or reported to them. And currently, over the island, um, pretty much all of the shelters are overcrowded. Mm. And the volunteers at those shelters have, you know, spoken to me and said that we're already overcrowded. We're terrified. Mm. And that, you know, there's many dogs that may be sick um, that, you know, don't have the chances of recovery. Um, There also may be animals that are extremely aggressive for whichever reason, um, that in a non-kill shelter with the facilities that they have right now will just spend the rest of their lives locked in a very small cage. Mm. Or these vicious dogs will be put in with other dogs and cause injury or death to other dogs like that. Right. Well, okay, so now we don't know the exact uh, circumstances of how this decision was made, uh, why... 
you know, these caretakers decided to load so many dogs into that van. Uh, but, you know, you, you, you run your own shelter uh, out here with, mm. uh, I, I think I remember, about 70 animals or so. Um, yeah. What, what does this say to you about uh, the, the level of service that is being offered by these government shelters? I mean, where might that disconnect have come in? And what are the steps that you would want to see the government uh, be taking right now uh, to make sure that these things are not happening once Taiwan becomes a zero-kill nation? Um, well, first of all, the employees at the, the government shelters should have training in animal care, in emergency care. If a dog is sick, um, if a dog is aggressive, you know, how do they handle that? How do they, what do they do? Um, you know, pretty much none of the, the staff at the animal facilities, the government facilities are trained in any which way, uh, not even in basic, you know, animal handling how to use slip leash collars, how to put muzzles on, you know, what to do in a situation to look at, um, you know, the animal's uh, behavior, you know, whether its tail is down, whether its ears are down, you know, these basic signs that animals give us that they're afraid or they're going to bite or they're going to do things. Um, You know, for me personally, when I first heard this news, um, common sense comes to mind. Um, I don't know anyone, even people without animals, that would think it would be a good idea to put 71 animals in uh, a truck with no ventilation. I've seen the photos of the truck. Um, It's one of those transporting trucks um, that like a supermarket would use, so no ventilation. Um, Cages where there there were uh, four to five dogs in a cage, and those cages were designed for one dog. This comes down to basic common sense. Um, I also heard from volunteers that were uh, amongst the situation that the dogs were actually put into the truck the night before and left in there overnight. Um, So that's over 12 hours in an extremely confined space that, you know, this is basic common sense and who agreed to this. Mm. So I think that there has to be a huge overhaul of all the shelters across the island um, with quarantine, with space, and with, you know, at least basic animal training and uh, first aid care of the animals. Mm. It looks like Jane has a quick question as well. Actually, mine isn't a question, it's more a comment. Um, when I was a rookie reporter in the late 90s, I actually covered animal rights. And I just want to say how much the treatment of dogs has improved from the late 90s. And in particular, I remember trying to interview Stephen Seagal and I watched him go to a Taiwanese dog shelter. And um, it was so bad that the head of Peter was with Stephen Seagal and the head of Peter told me he was thinking of getting um, Paul McCartney and all of Peter's celebrity supporters to sort of meet with Lee Dong-Hui and kind of lobby him. So in the late 90s, it was kind of an international issue. And in in relation to that, my understanding of the problem in the late 90s was it was especially bad because of Buddhist beliefs that was wrong to kill the dogs. So the dogs were really suffering, like... There were reports that the dogs had even resorted to cannibalism in the shelters in Taipei because it was just so abysmal for them. They're underfed, they're overcrowded. And um, I find this sort of no-kill policy really interesting because it kind of, to me, it seems very similar to the sort of Buddhist practices that were going on in the late 90s. And I'm wondering, actually, Lisa, if you could comment very quickly on um, why there's a no-kill policy because, to me... As we've talked about, in some situations, it's just not feasible in Taiwan to prolong the suffering of the dogs. I don't even know why they instituted such a policy. Um, there has been some groups uh, lobbying for this, actually. Um, 
you know, there's certain, yeah, it's uh, Taiwan is a Buddhist nation, um, majoritively. Um, and so if you go to any of the private shelters, especially in the south and in the, uh, in, in the north as well, but uh, predominantly in the south and in the, um, the uh, south and middle of Taiwan, um, the private shelters that have the choice to take in or not take in and kill or not kill, um, their shelters are abysmal. Um, I went to a shelter in Tainan, and um, it's probably the worst place I've ever been into. And I was um, mortified. Uh, you know, dogs in cages, literally, you know, dying. And, and and you know, you can imagine what's going on in their mind. Just like, please let me go. Um, but they don't believe. They they believe that they're doing a right job, playing some Buddhist music next to them, and uh, letting them go in their own time. But these dogs were suffering in their own excrement. Um, couldn't move, couldn't eat, um, and I honestly, I can't see this as being humane. You know, we need to take ourselves outside our little boxes and uh, realize that we need to help them in their time of need when they cannot do it themselves. Agreed. Um, so for me, definitely, I've been very worried about this non-kill uh, across the island and people supporting it because I don't, I think people support the idea and this idea that all these animals will be safe. But unless you've been to the, the government shelters and the private shelters, you know that this will not work. And also it will give us security across the island that, uh, you know, when people don't want dogs or they're bored or, you know, they see dogs on the street, that they can just take them to the government shelter because they will be okay. Mm -hmm. And the government shelters or private shelters just don't have the capacity. They don't have the training. They don't have the staff. They don't have the the land, you know, and they just, you know, there's so many non-profit um, organizations, including us, that are still looking for land that we cannot find. We cannot find a place to, to, to have a shelter because nobody wants animal shelters next to them. So it's, it's not feasible, especially not now. All right, well, we're going to have to end that segment there. That is the perspective of uh, Lisa Milne. She is one of the directors of Animals Taiwan. Lisa, thanks for joining us this evening. Uh, thank you very much for doing this topic. Yes, thank you. All right. Last up uh, for the broadcast, Gavin, uh, here's a Taiwan story that's gotten attention all over the world. The prehistoric remains of a mother and child have been dug up out of the ground and made their way right into our hearts. Yeah, this is in Taichung, where archaeologists found 4,800-year-old human remains. Some of this, the article was called them fossils, but... Fossils equals rocks. Basically, and then you get petrol and oil. So these, 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 were, are, these, weren't, these weren't fossils. These, these were, were still bones, organic matter. They could, you know, date them and everything. Yeah, basically, yeah. Anyway, these, these human remains were of a mother holding an infant in her arms. Like I said, they were found in Taichung. And researchers at the National Museum of Natural Science say they found 48 sets of remains unearthed in a grave. And they believe they are the earliest trace of human activity ever found in central Taiwan. But you missed the heartwarming part. That heartwarming part I'm a bit sceptical about. Because the heartwarming part that made international <laughs> press... Trust Gavin to kill the heartwarming part before we even said it. Here we go. This is, this is a quote from the Reuters story. The most striking discovery among them was the skeleton of a young mother looking down at her child cradled in her arms. And sure, when you look at these <laughs> skeletons, it does look like that. But the fact they've been underground for 4,800 years, which means they've sort of moved somewhat. It's you a know, heartwarming, gentle embrace of a mother that's lasted 4,800 years. I'm too cynical. Right? I'm too cynical. But the other interesting <laughs> thing about this, excavation of this particular site actually began two years ago. 
Yeah. Which is... Well, it the, takes a bit of time. It takes a bit of time. You've got a toothbrush and a little dusty thing. I've seen it on TV when they do this. But it is quite interesting. 4,800-year-old human remains, basically. Yeah. Yeah. The, well, what I find interesting about this, of course, is that it you know really shows the indigenous inhabitants in Taiwan, but also then gives more support to the whole idea that while these may not be part of the group that created the Austronesian empire, in quotes, it does link Taiwan to a clear indigenous background mm. that needs much more exploration and will tie us into the Austronesian side of the Pacific. Yeah, right. they haven't, they actually, the, the other interesting thing about this is they haven't actually released much information yet about these human remains. Mm. Right, I mean, and they may not be one of the tribes that became linked to the Austronesians and went down to New Zealand and everything, but it's still basically indigenous life on the island, Right. totally apart from that continent on the other side of the strait. Right, right. Yeah, of course, you're kind of alluding to that theory that Taiwan was perhaps uh, the ground zero for all of the uh, Austronesian islands. You know, they started here, then filled out to the Philippines, Indonesia, all those islands in the Pacific. Uh, But, you know, who knows? Uh, Probably more information to be gained from these remains uh, in the future. Maybe maybe we'll see. Maybe they will support that theory. Who knows? Or maybe they were just passing through to go to a 7-Eleven on their way somewhere else. An expert told me in Taidong there's an Aboriginal dialect which actually resembles Maori dialect in mm. New Zealand. Oh, no so, way. Yeah, so there, there little is... A little bit of support there. Yeah. A little bit of support there. All right, well, who knows what other secrets these bag of bones have to hold. Uh, but we are going to end that... Oh, was that disrespectful to the... I'm sorry. To these uh, reverent, lovely... Uh, visage of mother and child. Anyway, we're rounding out that story right there, moving to our final story for today, which is, of course, our podcast bonus story. Uh, We like to throw in something on the lighter side for all of you podcast listeners out there. Uh, And today, uh, it's definitely on the lighter side. A little bit of uh, fraudulent uh, money counterfeiting, but... um, Guy made a bit of a bit of a mess of it, Gavin. Yeah, these are the counterfeiting group that went to eleven. And there's a there's a reference there somewhere. A joke <laughs> as well, if you get the joke. Anyway, they decided to knock up some fake US currency and they decided to come up with an idea on their own. They didn't bother making a twenty dollar bill, they didn't even make a ten dollar bill, they didn't even make a one dollar bill, they ignored the hundred dollar bill completely, and they didn't realize that the largest US denomination of a bill is a one hundred thousand dollar bill. I didn't even know we had that. There you go, you do already apparently. huge. Now apparently these counterfeiters cranked that to eleven <laughs> and they created a one million US dollar banknote. One million dollars. <laughs> Can you imagine getting in a taxi with that? Oh, I, I'd like to try it. <laughs> See what kind of change I'd get. Now, the, the the really funny thing here is they actually put a lot of effort into these banknotes. I, I read that they were made with uh, 1960s actual banknote material, authentic material. The U.S. Secret Service determined that the bill was created using genuine U.S. $1 bills issued in 1963. And then, so they put all that work into it, and then not only do they make a totally bogus denomination on top of that, it still has George Washington's face on the front of it. Like, if you're going to have a million note, it should at least not be the same thing as the one. Of course, who would you put? Who would you put on <laughs> yeah, a million-dollar note? A million dollars. I don't know, man. I think that would depend on one's personal opinion. 
It would. Serious side though, where did they get the paper? Because that was authentic paper, I remember. Then that is a very limited quality. Yeah. That for the U.S. side, I think, should be investigated. That is an important question. The story even goes a little bit deeper, though. Uh, didn't th- this guy's story? The guy who was turned up with this stuff. A. He was trying to donate it. Yeah, he tried to know. He, he actually tr- he, he donated it to charity, a charity yeah. foundation last year. Now. He donated a $1 million bill to charity. Now what makes this even more ironically stupid is that one of the charity workers actually took it to a branch of Citibank. They tried to cash it. They because tried they to cash it. they thought they could put it in the bank. So, you know, I mean, really. <laughs> I it's... guess it was real enough to fool them. There we go. And he says that he got it because he was uh, some organization in China was trying to pay him for. Yeah, he, he was owed some money from somebody, and they paid him in fifteen of these fake one million dollar bills. So perhaps he didn't even know they were fake. Perhaps he thought he was doing a good thing right there. No, you see, that's the one person that doesn't know how to use the internet. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, certainly enjoyed that story this week, but we're going to have to round out the whole show right there. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening at 8.30 p.m. right here on ICRT FM 100. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes. Uh, And we've just started posting to the ICRT blog as well, so you can find it there. If you do visit the ICRT blog, please do remember to leave a comment. Let us know what you're thinking. Always curious to hear your thoughts on all these stories. Uh, But we're going to sign off now from the ICRT studio. Signing off, I am Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Yeah, good night. Jane Ricards. Good night, Keith. And Jerome Keating. Good night to you as well. Good night to you as well, too. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.